Defense of Phrenesis, a show dedicated to issues in political philosophy. Each episode will take a close look at important essays and ideas in political and social thought, linking them to historical and contemporary debates, which is to say, finding where they are discussed in the footnotes to Plato. Good afternoon. I am Brad Davis. And I'm Will Lombardo. And uh, welcome to the very first episode of Phrenesis. Uh, Will, want to tell us a little bit about yourself, what you're doing, what your background is? Yeah, I am uh, currently a policy researcher in Washington, D.C., uh, focusing on some international relations, but largely on law and legal policy in the U.S. Uh, I'm a recent Duke University graduate, so spent four years in North Carolina, but I'm originally from California and lived there almost my entire life. Wonderful. Uh, and I went to Lewis and Clark College in Portland, Oregon, uh, recently graduated and then spent a year uh, living in Morocco for a Fulbright, and now working on this show uh, and trying to further my studies in philosophy and theology. So for this very first episode, we thought we would pick... Um, Somewhat controversial essay, one that's very much uh, was timely. Hopefully by hopefully by the time this airs, uh, it'll still be uh, timely, not too tired. But uh, we thought we were going to discuss uh, Adrian Vermeule's most recent essay in the Atlantic, uh, the March thirty first essay, Beyond Originalism. Yeah, and actually, I think the first thing to note is that. Beyond Originalism is the essay, is the title that the uh, Atlantic editors gave it and was not uh, the original title that Vermeule wanted it to have. And the title he originally had in mind for it was Common Good Constitutionalism. And I think, and we'll discuss this later, uh, that the title that the Atlantic editors gave it has tinted how it's been read uh, and I think narrowed people's focus. Uh, to to an issue that I think at least how we interpret it is largely tangential to the point he's driving at. A good piece to pair with reading the article itself is the follow-up uh, Professor Vermeule wrote in the Mirrors of Justice blogs. Uh, he wrote a short response called A Series of Unfortunate Events, in which he gives a pretty satirical uh, and mocking account of perhaps on the way his critics uh view him and his work and that that we'll probably get into a little bit later as we're discussing who who Vermeule's audience might be for this really really interesting piece but well you want to start us off with a, a summary of sort of what's going on in this in this essay yeah so he starts basically by giving an account of uh what original what originalism is uh, but largely uh, by talking about the historical purpose it served, which is to say that uh, in the 60s, especially, uh, legal conservatives found themselves losing ground on policy outcomes, um, uh, you know, Supreme Court rulings uh, from the Warren Court and things like that. And so there was a push largely in the academy to uh, kind of formulate a new uh, judicial philosophy that would be facially neutral but could conserve or guarantee conservative outcomes. Uh, and you started to see a formulation of uh, originalism. I think Robert Bork was its most prominent spokesman uh, at the time, and it's really had a tremendous effect if you just look on the Supreme Court right now um, you know, at least three of the five conservative justices are very strictly originalists. Uh, Antonin Scalia was probably the most famous, uh, you know, uh, before he passed. And, and I don't think it'd be unfair to say that uh, Justice Scalia's work really inspired uh, the younger generations of conservative lawyers and their philosophies that uh, alongside his work with the Federalist Society really has left a major, um, has really left its impression on conservative legal theory. It, it is dominant. Right. And you started to see originalism kind of permeate uh, through the legal academy uh, and, and become increasingly sophisticated, uh, you know, to where I think when we talk about originalists, 
kind of throughout this episode, we have to distinguish between originalist academics um, who, who by and large have very good reasons for uh, adhering to, you know, kind of the tenets of originalism and then the kind of, you know, ecosystem of conservative pundits and stuff. Uh, you know, uh, uh, pundits, lobbyists, activists, politicians, even uh, who call themselves originalists and don't really have a well-articulated idea of why they are uh, that. And so we can discuss that. But I think that right now it's good to define kind of what originalism is and then contrast that with what Vermeule uh Authors as a as an alternative that he thinks the right should adopt. Sounds good to me. So, what what do you think are the key distinctions between academic originalism and the more uh, popular TV kind of originalism? I think the I'll start with the latter, and I think the best way to describe uh, the kind of popular originalism uh you know people who say the judges sort of interpret the constitution uh and the constitution says this uh is i think largely an outcrop of uh people with conservative sensibilities identifying the constitution with the just patriotic sentiment generally totally uh which is to which which is to say that they um uh, that it's very hard to come up with a kind of coherent version of American patriotism that uh, that doesn't have of it at least somewhat positive view of the American founding, and it's also hard to have a somewhat positive view of the American founding without uh, holding that the Constitution is in some way, shape, or form good. Yeah, uh, and that means that means substantively good. Either it guarantees good outcomes. Or it's an example of good government. And to me, it seems like a good bit of the perhaps patriotic originalism is the extent of interest and concern seems to really be the Bill of Rights and most particularly the First and Second Amendments and trying to understand and discuss those in as literal of terms as possible. My guess is that uh, most uh, talking head originalists aren't too concerned about um you know the the meat of the constitution proper uh questions of the supremacy clause um even due process in the bill of rights less important perhaps than the big um sexy controversial issues uh of gun rights Right. Well, gun rights and also the establishment clause, uh, yeah. which I, I think right now is, um, or at least within the past few years, and that's, I think, especially uh, with a lot of the executive actions of the Obama administration, was that um, the, uh, you know, what, what claims religiously observant people could exempt themselves from. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what government mandates, uh, you know, they would be able not to follow. Um, and, and so I think right now you see a kind of testing of the waters of, uh, you know, the extent of the establishment clause. So you saw that in the Hobby Lobby case with the uh, litigation uh, that the Little Sisters of the Poor are, you know, ongoing, whether they can, by the Affordable Care Act, be forced to uh, provide contraceptive coverage to their employers. Uh, things like that. Particularly uh, to those who are opposed to government intervention in daily lives and the growth of the administrative state, an originalist approach or an, an avowed commitment to originalism seems like a pretty good way of saying, I don't want the government to be doing things I don't like, which is, is nice and simple. It is. It is. I, I agree with that, and that's especially true when you talk about a kind of popular and, and simplistic version of originalism, which is that if uh, the you know the framers of the Constitution had nothing to say about an issue, then therefore uh, yeah. it's unconstitutional. <laughs> um, which uh, 
you know, you you have this to uh, you see this a lot with the issue over like substantive due process, um, uh, you know, which is mm-hmm. how you got decisions like Roe and Casey, um, uh, where you know they, they they say, well, you know, this was never spoken to. Um, therefore, you can't declare a, a constitutional right to it, um, or or that's you know excessively rigid uh, in its textualism. So you see this in, well, when you hear conservatives talk about the non-delegation doctrine sometimes, which is that uh, Congress may not delegate any of its statutory uh, making powers uh, to executive agencies and things like that. Um, and so you end up with a really rigid picture of the Constitution that uh, it would be actually impossible in practice to work with. Uh, but a lot of you know conservative activists seem to want the courts to adopt. Yeah, and again, it I could see how both seems and is a good buffer for those who perceive the courts, particularly the Supreme Court, to be legislating through uh uh granting unenumerated rights and through through really significant decisions that have been made in the past 20 30 years uh Roe uh Griswold on and on the the amount of political change that has occurred because of the courts has been great and in originalism serves as perhaps a way of checking that. But then we get Vermeule, who's coming at this from a totally different angle. Yeah, so I think one thing we can talk about kind of this originalism as, uh, um, you know, a, a form of political action or at least a, a bulwark against what's perceived as the political action of the left. And I, it's hard to see how that could be uh, turned into kind of an offensive strategy, basically, because even in a counterfactual scenario where, uh, you know, somehow the Roe decision was the opposite, um, that there, you know, was no constitutionally enumerated right to privacy that would, uh, you know, uh, create a national right to abortion. It seems unlikely that in the past 40 years that most states, uh, at least something like, you know, 30 to 35 of them say would not have just, you know, legalized abortion as, uh, you know, as the, the federal structure allows them to. Um, and and what Vermeule, I think, sees is that you can leverage the court to take a much more aggressive strategy against uh Honestly, the the wave of kind of cultural liberalization uh, to stop that, um, where you know if you can read a unenumerated right to privacy into the Constitution, um, then you know he thinks similarly. You could read an unenumerated right to life in the Constitution and overturn it on the same grounds. Uh, yeah, and, yeah. And, and his, so, his is a much more offensive strategy than the right. defensive one of originalism. And a fun thing that he, um, you know, the a fun thing that he links to is an article by, or it's actually a blog post by Mark Tushnet, who's uh, also a Harvard law, law professor. And uh, the blog post is entitled Abandoning Defensive Crouch Liberalism. Uh, and it was written right in the wake of the Obergefell decision. Uh, and the gist of it was that... Um, we should be treating uh, holdouts from the new legal regime created by Obergefell like uh, conquered enemies, basically. He uses the illusion that, uh, you know, how we, how we would have, you know, treated conquered Confederate soldiers or, or Nazis after uh, World War II. And it's, you know, we, we have all this power... Uh, built up in the courts at this time, uh, you know, the Obama administration was still in power, uh, and that you should use that momentum to kind of beat your ideological opponents into submission. And uh, I think Vermeule sees this a lot in the same way that when you're talking, what, what, uh, 
that you know with the the, the Trump administration in power right now with the majority on the Supreme Court and basically the entire entire federal circuit packed uh, that you know you can abandon your defensive crouch uh and start um you know playing offense against your opponents kind of rolling back some of the progress they've made um on certain issues and in other molding it toward a more uh you know, a coherent conception of the good, which, um, you know, we'll talk about. Yeah. Um, I, I think that this is a good point to get to the discussion of the common good. Um, there, there's a line, uh, towards the end of the essay that I, I really like where he says, elaborating on the common good principle that no constitutional right to refuse vaccination exists, Constitutional law will define in broad terms the authority of the state to protect the public's health and well-being, protecting the weak from pandemic, pandemics and scourges of many kinds, biological, social, and economic. Even when doing so requires overriding the selfish claims of individuals to private rights. So a recurring theme throughout much of Vermeule's work is that the current liberal regime asserts a common good or a good uh, for individuals within the society, but maybe doesn't fess up to it or admit to it, and that sometimes it might be a distorted good that it aims for. And so the core of this common good principle in the essay seems that to the extent that we already legislate towards certain common goods, we must reorient the good that we're aiming for and then legislate and rule towards these. And again, if it's all right to uh, make laws that supersede individual uh, liberty when it comes to vaccines, it makes sense that in terms of uh, public economic health or moral health, we might be able to make laws to again supersede individuals decisions yeah that's that's right and uh, he also i think one of the the bads that he sees of kind of the modern liberal order uh, is that it creates a kind of falsity or a, a false consciousness uh basically that it lies about its aims uh that that it, it's not truthful about its uh, trying to to mold a certain kind of person, but that it does that 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 all of these state and non-state actors coordinate together to um, to you know mold the kind of person they like to see, and that's something like the autonomous consumer, uh, you know, not very thick ties to community church family. Uh, and that one of the advantages to what he's proposing is not just that his his idea of a good life is better than the idea of an autonomous consumer, but that also people in the state will be living according to publicly professed values also, whereas, uh, you know, the, the, the liberal regime is kind of sneaky, uh, and it it promotes this idea of, you know, being a... You know, autonomous consumer kind of signing contracts with people whenever you want to interact with them, but it doesn't say so, uh, and that and that that falsity is in itself a bad thing. And these values definitely get, uh, and we are habituated into these values as we take part in uh, the daily life of a citizen. They're sort of forced onto us as we participate in the market and particularly as we are exposed to various advertising and various marketing endeavors that not only just for products to consume, but the same methods uh, in political campaigns and uh, political action campaigns and election campaigns. And also, I, I think maybe most dishonestly in the school system wherein very much you're right we don't fess up to what values it is that we intend our society to impart 
but the formation of standards, the uniformity of education and the way that's approached absolutely imprints a model and a frame of reference on every single student, which isn't a bad thing or need not be a bad thing, but to do so without any awareness of it and fact denial of it uh does seem nefarious right it's not the conformity per se that is the problem uh all all societies are going to you know demand a certain amount of conformity uh just to maintain a, a, a level of cohesion necessary to you know not break apart but it's so it's not the conformity that's the problem it's you know what people are being made to conform to that it's the problem and you know vermeule thinks uh you know in, in keeping with a uh long tradition of not just catholic critics of modernity um that it creates a kind of uh empty unfulfilled purposeless husk of a person kind of um and you know this is a you know this is a critique you see from like very far left thinkers also um, but also, uh, now that you're starting to see on the Catholic right also, and Vermeule picks. Yeah, Vermeule is one of the particularly interesting scholars and thinkers who is using a lot of the leftist insights of the 20th century and using those to help uh, color or extend uh early modern pre-modern and medieval medieval thought um the the catholic right does seem to be a particularly uh fecund uh play, place for critical thought at the moment yeah i i agree and i think that's uh that's largely because they're they're thinkers who are oriented to a very different conception of what is good than a lot of the right in America, uh, which is still kind of infected with the small government thinking. So there's not a lot of an idea of a political good outside of, you know, a s wide sphere of action for the individual that the state doesn't touch. Um, uh, and that doesn't mean that they don't uh, experience the kind of uh, dissatisfaction with society at large, but that their their you know uh, attachment to negative liberties kind of precludes them from taking the logical step they would need to to kind of uh, you know alleviate that dissatisfaction. I think it's true both of the somewhat center left and center right. A sort of a denial to look for or think of or or expect any political good uh so much as just to as you're saying searching for for negative liberty and trying to ensure that the government doesn't infringe on on individual goods and you see it in the clichés of the Reagan era you see it in the uh uh parodying character of Ron Swanson. <laughs> There's a very limited sense of what kind of good can exist. But Vermeule seems to have a pretty cogent, clear, and specific sense of what a common good would be for the U.S. And could you maybe elaborate on that for us? Yeah, it's no secret from what else he's written uh, that for Vermeule, the common good is the common good as defined by Catholic social teaching, which makes it really easy to see what he has in mind because you, you can just read what that is in the catechism, uh, you know, what exactly the church prescribes from just societies, uh, at least at least what a just society will look like. Uh, it, it, it doesn't uh, offer up a blueprint for getting there. Uh, and that's what, you know, Vermeule wants with this. But, you know, for, in, you know, in Catholic social thought, the, the overarching good that all people are, you know, directed to is their eternal life. Uh, and so all goods that they participate in on earth uh, are supposed to conduce toward that end. 
and the state is supposed to, you know, facilitate their participating in earthly goods, uh, you know, to give them the best chance, say, of participating in the non-earthly goods, which means, you know, actively, which means actively circumscribing, uh, you know, action that's sinful um, within reason, uh, you know, but also ensuring the the decency of people, or you know, so, no, decency. You know, also also in ensuring the dignity, uh, you know, of people's living conditions. Uh, you know that they're being paid a just wage, uh, that the earth is stewarded properly, uh, things like that. And the reliance on on Catholic teaching is part of what I I think I respect most or helps me take really seriously uh, Vermeule's argument and it's he's not arguing for some sort of good or some sort of model of society that he's conceptualizing it's not the order of the universe according to Adrian Vermeule right it exists externally and is determined out beyond him. He has no influence on what it could be. That's and that's I th- right. Think I think that is something that has been slightly underappreciated by some of the many critics Vermeule's had. Insofar as his argument rests or falls, not based on what any of the policy outcomes of this would look like or i think really what the world under it would look like for for mule's argument so long as there is some concept of good out there that can be directed towards even if it's an inferior concept i think it would be necessary to direct society towards it and trying to move forward the this is not uh one of the negative arguments that his critics are making it's very much if we want to improve society and direct it towards some kind of good any kind of good this is how we have to do it now i do think that catholic social teaching is uh the ultimate good i i don't think there is a greater good to direct society towards but even for one who isn't catholic uh people of the other abrahamic faiths people of non-monotheistic faiths even atheists this argument still could be a good and compelling one if society could agree to any sort of common good or even a benchmark that was derivative of multiple conceptions of it right and there's two parts to that one is that society agreeing toward any sort of common good would uh you know probably do do wonders for you know its cohesion uh you know for the fun for functioning for the solidarity between people and things like that uh but it doesn't just end on the level of the functioning of the state the common good is also supposed to coincide with the good of the individual and i think you're right when he when that he thinks that this should be appealing to non-catholics partially because of the sort of feeling of emptiness that we talked about earlier, that offering people something that would kind of be, that would be fulfilling would be attractive to them. And that doesn't, uh, and obviously he thinks that, that what he is offering is what would be objectively good for them. I'm not saying that, uh, you know, any comprehensive, notion of the good uh you know would suffice equally but that what it's going to come down to is a confrontation between the hollowed out individual life on you know that people experience in liberal democracy and the very substantive conception of the good he's offering and he really thinks there will be no middle ground there and that people will gravitate uh, toward his because it you know, fulfills the uh, you know search for meaning that their their uh, their search for meaning. Yeah, I 
I would not want to pretend I know Vermeule's opinion on this or, or that this is his thought, but for myself, I think I would rather live in a society. I, I am very much not a man of the left in numerous ways, but I'd rather live in the most left liberal concept of a society through Vermeule's framework than the status quo, I, I, I think. And um, that that's with an inferior inferior i believe good to to uh catholic social teaching as he presents it or as the church presents it and vermeule calls for and, and in that way there's a lot of criticism of his work and those who are adjacent to him of i mean the we haven't said it yet the thousand pound uh papist elephant in the room uh being integralism a a growing political theory ideology uh that that would have church and state not separate not equal uh it, an integralist society a catholic integralist society would be one in which the church has authority over and beyond any political apparatus and is able to, to some extent, dictate uh, social life, leaving some things to the temporal powers to the government to decide how, how they ought to be dealt with, uh, but prioritizing the spiritual realm within a society. Right, and I think it's important to to, to get specific there that uh, in the idea of this, the church has jurisdiction over baptized Catholics— and can coerce baptized Catholics in matters of faith, but does not have jurisdiction over non-baptized Catholics and can't do anything, uh, you know, to coerce them to convert or something. Uh, or Vatican II encyclicals that make this very clear. But at the at the same time, the state will recognize the authority of the Church in spiritual matters and the truth that the Church teaches, and this is a very scary idea to a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and there, there is fair question. I mean, I think Will's right that ideally non baptized, non Catholics would not be coerced. Uh, there are fears people have of what the, uh, Catholic integralist regime would actually look like on the ground and how true to those ideals it could be. They're both of this more conceptually and uh, of the Vermeule article we're discussing in particular. There was uh, just today, causing quite some splashes, an article uh, written in Law and Liberty uh, going on uh, discussing sort of the history of validly Catholic social political movements. Um, ones that could be considered integralist and their deep connection to unsavory, often fascist uh, and or authoritarian regimes, which isn't a pretty history. I won't, won't deny, but is there can be question about practice and implementation and Vermeule is trying to start the conversation within theory, at least. Right. I and I, I don't I don't think that those critiques should be so dismissed out of hand because a lot of what uh it, you know contemporary integralists are fond of referring to are uh kind of medieval, early modern confessional states, where if you look at something like the Holy Roman Empire, um, there was actually, at least for you know, some time, a fair amount of religious pluralism uh, and uh, you know, faiths that coexisted alongside one another. Uh, but that modern attempts to do the same thing uh, you know, using the powers of the Viberian nation state, which, you know, has powers that, you know, the Holy Roman Emperor could ever dream of, 
um, it's it's a great temptation to use those powers uh, uh, to coerce in ways that you know I think would be unacceptable, and I don't think it follows necessarily from what we're trying or or for, from I don't think it follows necessarily from what Vermeule is trying to do, but. I think that it's a danger inherent that I would like to see addressed more. Yeah. And you know, I'm not really sure how, how well this ties in, but uh, my entrance to the into the church occurred while I was living in Morocco, which I think would not be... I don't think it'd be inaccurate to describe the country as a, a Muslim integralist state. In a lot of ways, it mirrors, uh, it does mirror the the plan of uh, Vermeule or some of the other integralists in the relationship between uh, religious good and society. And I have a lot would would have a lot of positive things to say about the way uh, religion was treated in, in Morocco, and in, including the pluralism, which isn't to say that there there aren't some drawbacks but the the dismissal out of hand of an integralist or more religious friendly state need not be so and the conversation's just really so hyperbolic uh in a way that it is possible to have a good just and religious regime actualized even in the modern world i believe I right I don't I don't think that doing it is impossible but and you know one one thing I I discuss in the the piece I wrote about this is that uh, we we neglected to mention uh will recently uh wrote an essay about Vermeule's essay for a thwart um online magazine but sorry keep uh, going thank you for the plug I appreciate it Right, and so you know, one of the things I I talk about is that alongside the emptiness of modern society, uh, you know, there are actual goods that people enjoy, you know, some of which I think represent genuine moral progress from the pre-modern era. Uh, and when people ask about specifics from this regime, they're gonna, uh, you know, want to know. Uh, what they're asking about is not something like the marginal tax rate. They're asking about what's going to become of some of these some of these goods, and you know that that could that could be things like uh, you know are are women still going to retain their equal status in in this society? And I suspect the answer is yes, but they have a right to want to know that. Or um, you know I'm 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 Jewish. Am I going to be able to participate in civic life? Uh, you know, in the fullest level, am I going to kind of, you know, get the recognition as a person from other people and from the state, uh, you know, that I'm owed. And there haven't been a lot of fleshed out answers to these things. Uh, and, and I understand that there, that an abstract groundwork is being laid here, but, you know, but but goods modern goods like that, uh, you know, are, are things that we should we should want to protect and that people, you know, have a, have a right to know what or you know people people deserve to know you know how those things would look in you know the, in this society and I want to give them the benefit of the doubt I know they're decent people and they want a humane and decent politics but the the only models that we have for you know a powerful catholic state are the franco regime which is not something that I want to endorse uh you know or the other thing that's brought up are you know is something like the spanish inquisition um you know, th this is this is what people think of, uh, and I, I don't think a lot has been done to assuage their concerns about this. And it's something that I think they uh, are, you know, justifiably concerned about. Yeah, I, I, I think some things like the Inquisition are probably a little too demonized in popular perception. 
from from historical reality. But I think you're right. And uh, first things ran that article about was it the young Jewish boy who was baptized yeah. uh, Edgar, by Edgar? Yeah, Edgar Mortara. Yeah, when right. you start talking about things like that, I I understand. Um, I understand some of those fears. On the other hand, and I think Morocco is a good case study for what this, what elements of this could look like. When your regime doesn't, when you don't have a First Amendment, when you don't have a declared uh, right to free speech, that isn't the same thing as your right to speak your mind suddenly. Or, when a state no longer endorses a uh, right to free speech, for example, that doesn't mean your ability to communicate or express yourself disappears. Maybe some of the sure. venues of it are reduced. Uh, I mean, certainly, uh, I mean, Britain, it's the case. Uh, Morocco, certainly there are much harsher penalties available for the government uh, if they don't like what journalists are doing, which right. in many instances probably isn't a good thing. But I, I think there's some fear that if you um, change the constitutional structure or live in a society that doesn't have the American Bill of Rights, suddenly your freedom evaporates or your ability to live a good life evaporates. And right, that's and clear- not the case. Sure. I mean, obviously, the, the original intent of the framers of the Constitution was not to have a written Bill of Rights. They didn't think it would be necessary. Uh, and, and that's, you know, that, that's all true. Uh, but I think one of the things we're avoiding talking about here is, uh, you know, implementation. And when we're talking about people, uh, living in Morocco, they were largely, you know, not people who underwent a change from a liberal democracy to, uh, change from a state like Morocco. True. Uh, and, you know, they see the world differently. Um, you know, they have a lot of the same, uh, you know, like, important, you know, they, they you know. The values most are... Of all, most of all of their, of, of their goods are our goods also. Um, but, you know, it, it, but they're not all the same. Uh, and you know, we we yeah. think we have kind of an of inviolable light right to self expression or something, uh, and that's reinforced yeah. by the First Amendment and all the case law and stuff like that. But it also has, you know, a, a kind of long intellectual heritage, and it's also the the way we think of ourselves. We're partially people because we express to other people. That's how we constitute our identity, or something. Uh, and it, it, it's hard to imagine how people wouldn't. Uh, you know, perceive a move to take that away all at once or very quickly is extremely threatening because, you know, one of the things that's true is we have all these, you know, modern values which are popular to disparage right now, but that, you know, they took centuries to form or so it wasn't an overnight revolution. Uh, you know, it, I don't know. Marie Antoinette might disagree a little bit there. And but you know there was a 250 year intellectual buildup to that, uh, and to where we get now, there's another you know two centuries in between of things changing, of not just intellectual groundwork being laid, but but you know political action that kind of coincidentally coincided with uh, you know the where intellectual trends were going. And so I think it's important to, you know, to realize that that didn't happen all at once. And if you had ripped pre-modern people out of where they lived and just, you know, given them modern values and said, these are right, they wouldn't even have been able True, true, true. And what makes Vermeule the most compelling of the... Um, most compelling of the integralists is that he does have a path for implementation and one that isn't very revolutionary uh, in character. It's one very, very modern and and that's through government bureaucracy. Uh, Could you maybe speak 
a li- little to that? Or yeah, actually, before before you do, I'm sorry. Uh, something I don't think we emphasized sufficiently at the beginning. Um, Adrian Vermeule is a law professor at um, at Harvard's law school, and is occupies a very prominent chair uh, at the law school, the name of which... The Ralph S. Tyler Yes, chair. yes, yes, the Ralph S. Tyler chair, which uh, previously the inaugural holder of was John Ely, who uh, was an amazing legal theorist, really uh, interesting work. Not someone I would consider um, politically radical to the extent of extent uh, Vermeule is. And that's part of what's so interesting about him and his work. Vermeule is a very well-respected scholar of American administrative law and uh, the overlaps between constitutional law and American bureaucracy. And then suddenly people become aware of this uh, integralist side of him, uh, the the political theory side, uh, separated from the uh, very much academic legal scholar. And it's quite a character uh, that that draws up at that. So you've read more of his academic work than I have. Can you talk maybe a little bit about Vermeulean bureaucracy and sort of how that could be his path towards implementation? Yeah. So he uh, so uh so Vermeule is one of the uh foremost defenders of the administrative state in America today uh which is kind of ironic because uh you know he was known as a conservative scholar in the academy since he started uh and uh you know as a whole uh, you know, it, it, the, your prototypical conservative legal scholar's overarching goal is to topple the administrative state because it's either democratically unaccountable, because it's, uh, you know, inefficient, staffed with, uh, you know, self-interested people or ideologues, uh, and and that, you know, it, it ought to go. Um and a lot of your mill's work is def- is uh dedicated to defending the administrative state uh against critics like these and so there's two parts to it one is that the administrative state is inevitable uh and its growth is inevitable uh and the second part is that uh you should like this um and so the general layout of this is that uh Legislators uh, have a whole host of incentives to delegate their powers to administrative agencies. Uh, they can spend time on campaigning and you know not on policy. Uh, they recognize their lack of expertise on certain very technical matters and don't have the time, knowledge, uh, you know, or research staff to to get. Uh, caught up to date with it, um, or in times of uh, emergency, uh, the president basically expands the executive branch faster uh, than the legislature can respond to meet the emergency, and then the legislature retroactively a- approves uh, the executive movement by uh, legitimating uh, the expansion of executive power. And the courts have a very similar set of incentives uh, where they'll basically, uh, do, where the courts will be extremely deferential to administrative agencies uh, and to the executive as well. And if I can interrupt you there mm-hmm. for a moment, I think uh, what you were just saying is part of why it seems the discussion of integralism has exploded over the past couple of years and why the debate around Vermeule's work is really raging right now. And I think since the election of Trump, both the fears and hopes of change in the executive branch has allowed for some more room 
for people to imagine what that could morph into, or particularly uh, for Vermeule's work, how the administrative state under a new, perhaps different type of executive, uh, in and certainly his mannerisms and character, uh, how that might change American society. But right now, in the middle of the coronavirus crisis, we we don't know what's going to happen or change following this or in the recovery or in the years to come. And the amount of emergency actions being taken, while necessary and probably good, I mean, the emergency actions always have unintended consequences. And we're seeing just with uh, all the state governors who are uh, in very short course changing uh, electoral processes for their states to try and prevent people from coming to the voting booths. I mean, that's not a bad thing. I'm sure it's... uh, it, it we don't want people to get sick when they're going to vote but as the means and process of voting changes so quickly it's hard to predict how else that might change or the ramifications of that could be for uh executives in the year to come and that's in a microcosm uh the macro uh view of everything going on that's a lot of change that could very much be shifted towards a new vision of the common good. Right. Well, this is this is partially why uh, presidential elections have become so existential uh, in the in the U.S. Basically, is that so much you know meaningful government action takes place through the executive branch now, uh, and they can basically you know executives can basically bypass Congress for a lot of things. Uh, and especially when you're talking about, uh, you know, foreign policy, war making, but that's increasingly becoming less true. Uh, and, uh, you know, other agencies are starting to collect power to be able to wield themselves. And so Vermeule's idea is that if you can kind of strategically capture spots in these agencies over time, uh, then you can wield agency powers to, you know, interpret vague laws or contradictory laws or ambiguous laws uh, in the direction of the common good. And his grasp of administrative law allows him to, you know, uh, see how that would happen. I think there have long been fears in the U.S., uh, almost since founding, of Catholic infiltration of the American government, and maybe sort of reached its zenith uh, with uh, both... uh, Jokes, fears, and accurate observations of the highly Catholic CIA, uh, Central Intelligence Agency, Catholics in action, either way. I, but that is what Vermeule seems to want as a means of implementation. You, you find marginal actors who can make small decisions that, over the course of, in society as a whole, aggregate to significant changes in our moral life that's exactly what he's advocating and we also might question then you know what's the effectiveness of speaking it publicly right because to to do this it almost has to be coert when you're talking about infiltrating something that implies that you're doing it secretly and kind of under the radar and, it, it, you know, it, it seems like if this was starting to happen and people realized it at the wrong time, then they would think of it as enough of a threat to kind of remove the means to doing it. So that's, that's one of the things that I think is curious is, you know, writing about a, a covert plan. Now, maybe he would prefer that you elect a president who's amenable to his ideas, who just staffs, you know, the, the federal bureaucracy with the right people, and it happens in this great coup almost. I, 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 don't, I don't know exactly. Well, I think importantly, it isn't a coup. And I, I don't want to get sidelined into a discussion of Carl Schmidt here, who certainly is a major influence on Adrian Vermeule. I, I think the point is, is that this isn't a coup. It is finding actors who can act as sort of a Schmidtian sovereign on a small scale 
and make decisions in their small little fiefdoms, be it somewhere in a deep dark corner of HUD or the USDA, that habituate society closer towards the common good, that normalize this approach to politics, and that that grows and spreads. I, you know, a coup to me sounds like something immediate and drastic. Uh, this, this seems like a, it, it seems more realistic in being small changes uh, surmounting to something greater in the long term. Right, and the the relationship to Schmidt is interesting uh, because Schmidt was uh, extremely uh, not even ambivalent. Uh, you know, he was worried about the uh, effect of bureaucracy on the political life of people. That that impersonal administration would gradually kind of suck the humanity out of our uh, out of our political life, and it's interesting that uh, Vermeule sees it as the opposite, almost that the the bureaucracy is the way to, you know, it kind of inject a sort of humanity back into our political life. Uh, you know, it, at least in the in the way that, um, you know, the 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 state is seizing on. Uh, conception of the good and making that decision for the uh, entire people and that politics is you know fundamentally deciding on what that good is uh, and so they're they're kind of opposite uh, in you know in how they think of bureaucracy but they want to achieve somewhat of the same goal yeah and I'd like to push us towards uh, something you were starting to bring up. That is, I have no idea who Vermeule's intended audience for this piece is. I, I feel like I might fit into it, you might fit into it, but like, who else is there that this is a good fit for? It seems like it, it could only cause rage uh, among the libertarian crowds. It has caused a great deal of indignation from uh, from liberal left centrists. It has caused a great deal of indignation from the left, it seems. Although, I mean, as he talks about throughout the essay, he is trying to adopt in some ways leftist legal theory, particularly uh, sort of a Dworkinian approach to law. But then he goes and totally mocks uh, those sorts of people in that follow-up he wrote. I, I can't, for the life of me, figure out who he's trying to persuade, or if he's even trying to persuade anyone. Right. I. So I think you're. I. I think you're. You're. Uh, you know, it's not that it seems like it was written to, you know. Uh, to make these people angry. It did make these people angry. It made them very angry. Um, and that could have either been because, um, you know, if you find yourself on the left, then you probably think the, the moral vision, uh, he's trying to instantiate is abhorrent. And if you are in the, um, you know, if you're a liberal right or left, um, you know, the idea of, you know, basically abandoning liberal government as in liberal institutions, uh, is, is scary. Um, so the way I interpreted it at least was trying to, um, just inject these ideas into mainstream debate and it might convince some people uh, but the fact is, and you've seen this with talk of integralism over the past year or two, is that it's a topic that basically no one knew about three years ago, uh, and is now something that you know law professors in uh, you know at at serious institutions in real journals feel the need to refute, or that's getting 
page time in major national publications, uh, you know, of people describing how dangerous it is. And so I think, you know, what he's doing is contributing to that effort to normalize this, basically, uh, you know, rather than trying, you know, to sell his uh, progressive colleagues on this or to, um, you know, con- convince uh, conservative pundits that they, you know, ought to abandon their fealty to the Constitution and adopt his ideas. So, this isn't exactly what you were saying, but it the totality of what you said sort of comes off that maybe this is a move to try and anger people into responding and showing how ridiculous or ineffective or incapable the critiques are sort of, sort of that he's challenging people to come and criticize this he's i mean putting it in their minds forcing them to respond to it but is is right. that it or not quite well one of yeah one of the ways i've interpreted it as and the political vision is ultimately setting up a confrontation. But you could see this as trying to provoke a reaction that sets up a confrontation, too, because you can see kind of a realm of discourse that's basically tolerated within, uh, you know, legal, uh, liberal politics. And once you start poking at the edges of the politics themselves, you get lashed out at, which is kind of the nature of regimes to protect themselves. And that, you know, by by setting up a, 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 a confrontation, maybe by forcing someone to say that the states would suppress this, it creates this very clear contradiction in sort, uh, sort of exposing thought. the farce of, of how we view ourselves. You could call it heightening the contradictions, I guess. That, heightening the contradictions. That, you know, is the, the, um, the old Marxist trope that, uh, you know, if you if you make clear enough the say uh, you know uh, pr- professed freedom of capitalist society and the wage slavery that the proletariat is captured in, if you make that stark enough, uh, you know, eventually something will snap, and that's you know that that may be on a small scale kind of the idea here. That if you provoke them enough, uh, you know, if you provoke kind of the, um, you know, liberal establishment enough, it will provoke a reaction that, you know, exposes the inconsistencies uh, or just the outright contradiction uh, between the thought and the practice. Yeah, and I think the numerous, numerous, numerous responses and critiques Vermeule uh, has received do show a lot of the contradictions and show a lot of people not quite up to the challenge of of uh, fighting this out with them. I, I've been disappointed with almost all of the, the responses. I thought yours was quite good. I, I encourage people to check it out. But, well, thank you. Well, I, I think that there's there are different um, you know, we talked about the different groups of people reading this, and there's there's almost going to be no common ground for, uh, you know, a, a person of the left to critique this on. Um, and so the only language you have then is, or or they would have then, I guess, is to explain you know on their terms how uh you know this is a problem which doesn't seem like it's really getting at the argument but it's because the argument is being made on almost completely different terms um and so i think the ones that are are you know the most inadequate are the ones that are um you know sputtering about the state uh, or the Constitution, uh, or something, and those are critiques that are largely coming from the right, um, who, who, and uh, and you know, I think whose imaginations this is trying to expand 
um, but who at least the the right quote unquote intellectual class is is very you know reluctant to move in this direction or at least a lot of them are yeah absolutely well i think we've had a good discussion today i'm excited to see what else adrian vermule is going to write in the months and years to come if you happen to notice catholic integralist operatives in your local dmv i think we know who to blame and if you find yourself desiring to listen to a new wonderful podcast on political theory we now know where you should listen thank you for bearing with us for our very first episode of phrenesis uh if you have any thoughts questions comments concerns or if Professor Vermeule, you're listening to this and want to talk to us, feel free to hit us up on Twitter or on our website, which will be linked in the bio.